Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, I have something big and exciting that I want to share with you. I've been working on this for over four years now. Um, it's my new paper, How Did East Asia Overtake South Asia on Gender? And I'd like to share it with you. I think this will be the most important paper I'll ever write in my entire life. I think it's one of the biggest, most important unanswered questions in the social sciences that about, you know, how is it that the entire world has become more gender equal, but some are so much more gender equal than others. And the Southeast Asian comparison is so interesting because they were extremely patriarchal, but only one of them has become much more gender equal. So for me, it's a big conundrum. It's something I've, as I say, been thinking about for four years. So let me share it with you and I welcome all comments and criticism. Okay, here we go. So in 1900, East and South Asia were extremely patriarchal. Men were revered as high status while female sacrifice was glorified. By socializing women to marry, obey their in-laws and stay put, Asian families consolidated trusted networks of social cooperation. Since chastity was crucial for family honor, women were also tightly restricted. But over the 20th century, East Asian women increasingly undertook paid work in the public sphere, forged solidarity and gained status. Growth also catalyzed a broader process of cultural liberalization, autonomy, dating and divorce. South Asian patriarchy is much more persistent. Intimate partner violence remains normalized. To explain this divergence, I suggest that every patrilocal family faces a trade-off between honor, which is achieved by social policing, and income, which is earned through exploiting female labor. East Asian female employment rose because rising wages compensated for honor. East Asian culture also differed. They lacked endogamy and were less concerned about female seclusion. Okay, so as for the, the methodology to try to contribute to this new and important field, I have comparatively analysed several millennia of cultural evolution of um, South and East Asia. This paper thus draws on the published literature in economics, history, sociology and anthropology, as well as my own qualitative research. Um, that's two months of qualitative research across six states of India, interviews with Asian migrants, as well as Zoom interviews in China. In India, I stayed with families in Delhi, Jaipur, Udaipur, Bangalore, Mumbai and Calcutta, and then joined a research team touring villages in Bihar. So farmers, traders, waitresses, drivers, teachers, housewives, office workers, politicians, students, academics, activists and government bureaucrats all shared their diverse perspective. So this socio-economic, geographic and generational range enabled my comparative analysis. Group discussions were usually thematic. You know, women were asked about how their lives differed from their mothers or what they anticipated after marriage. When chatting to individuals, I usually ask them to narrate their life histories and that helped me trace change over time and what shaped their personal trajectories. And since self-presentations are usually carefully curated, I triangulated their accounts through observation, interviewing relatives and, and comparing what people said in different settings. Conceivably, a person might speak differently when they're alone. So to mitigate bias, I frequently shared my analysis and also invited critique. Open transparency, I think, has helped me build trust, network and learn. So many participants have contacted me afterwards, repeatedly sharing, providing more in insights. So what follows is all being, the names have been changed to preserve anonymity. So let's go back to 1900, when East Asian and South Asian women were historically unfree and oppressed. Both societies were historically patrilineal and patrilocal. Men were revered as high status, knowledgeable authorities, providers, seance of the family line and performers of funeral rites. Men decide, women follow was the Confucian model. Man high, woman low is a similar idiom from South Korea. 
women were obliged to serve, obey, and produce sons. Daughters were perceived as less valuable because they would soon marry into another family. The Telugu said, bringing up a daughter is like watering a plant in another's courtyard. This difference in treatment is reflected in sex ratios, mortality, education, and stunting. When Chinese families were plagued by cholera or famine, they drowned girls at birth or sent them as slaves. Punjabi girls likewise died disproportionately. Elite Korean boys were educated in the classics, but girls, however wealthy, were kept ignorant. In 1930 Shantou, boys outnumbered girls the three to one. Chinese girls grew up learning that they were less valued and more constrained. Likewise, in India before 1901, female literacy was almost zero. Patrilocality meant that men lived on family land, supported by their family and village. A young bride was an outsider with no claim to resources. Her husband's kin imposed close policing to preserve prestige. If visitors called and only a woman was present, she might answer, no one is home. Korean women had no independent identity. Female chastity, obedience and sacrifice were praised as virtuous. In northern China, girls' feet were broken to improve their prospects for marriage by signaling confinement. Both Confucius and the laws of Manu prescribed female subordination. The Bhagavad Gita describes girls and sudras, that is lower caste, as lower births, born of sinful uh, parentage, barred from Hindu moksha, that is spiritual liberation. Sita, the goddess, remains the model of female devotion, revered in Hindu mythology for over 2,000 years. Every year for Kawashath, Hindu wives are expected to fast and pray for their husbands. Now let me introduce my new concept of the patrilocal trap. So female subordination and seclusion in traditional patrilocal societies emerges from this coordination failure, which I call the patrilocal trap. Trusted networks of commerce and cooperation were consolidated through intermarriage. Daughters were socialized to marry, please their in-laws and stay put. Like boys, girls learnt to obey their elders and put family first. Women internalised the responsibility to stay silent and maintain her family's reputation. Privately taught, publicly talking about private matters was shameful. Divorce was heavily stigmatised. So my theory explains why mothers-in-law can be so tyrannical. Wives' unwavering loyalty gave their husband's family the upper hand. Mothers-in-law could command obedience since daughters-in-law cannot credibly threaten exit. Her family would be humiliated. Institutions reinforce social policing. An entire family could be penalised for one member's disobedience. In East Asia, punishment was enforced by the state and also other families. In South Asia, assemblies of older men might ostracize members from their endogamous networks of commerce, cooperation, and future marriages. Fear of that ostracism instilled conformity. In patrilineal societies, women bear sons to perpetuate their husband's lineage, and that generates a profound uncertainty and anxiety about female sexuality. So families maintained honour by removing all doubts about the virginity of unmarried women and the fidelity of wives. Women were then tightly policed and their movements restricted. If a woman was seen moving about too freely, the ensuing gossip would soon circulate through close-knit rural communities, ruin her marriage prospects and disgrace her family. So despite the grinding poverty of village life, women earning wages away from home was rare. Few families wanted to stick their neck out and be the first to send their daughter away because she might be perceived by the village as promiscuous. I want to quote from a Chinese woman and she says, at that time it wasn't as open as now with so many people going out. People seeing a girl leaving home would think, who knows what she's doing? Should, should she be doing other things, going off with men? Chastity is extremely important to Chinese people. Other girls growing up in the village could be observed by everyone. But if you ran so far away, no one could see what you were doing. So later you wouldn't be able to find a husband. Better families, those with promise, wouldn't let you marry their son. 
So patrilocal networks and patrilineal descent thus generated two negative feedback loops entrenching female subordination and seclusion. Women were socialized to obey their in-laws who imposed these tight restrictions. Now I want to introduce a new concept, the honor-income trade-off. Why might patrilineal families ever support women's paid work outside the home? Well, in abstraction, each family faced a trade-off between honour and income. Families gained respectability by conforming to gender status beliefs that men were authorities, that women and women stayed away from unrelated men. But the more that women were secluded, the less families could exploit that labour. Families might be tempted to supplement their meagre earnings by putting their daughters to work in towns, but that would jeopardise honour and network inclusion. Economically desperate families were the most likely to send their daughters and wives away to work, yet once family circumstances improved, women would be brought back home to gain respectability. Meanwhile, the wealthiest families displayed their affluence by keeping women in seclusion and foregoing the financial benefits of female work. Elites, that is Yangbang Korean women, were veiled. Upwardly mobile families gained status by following suit. But... On average, South Asians and East Asians seem to make different trade-offs between honour and income. The size of the market reward from putting women to work needed to be larger in South Asia than in East Asia to compensate for the loss of honour. So East Asian families were less obsessed with policing women's movements than South Asian families. But that small difference could make a big difference when economic conditions changed. East Asian families were more willing to treat their daughters as an economic resource. This meant that female employment was more responsive to economic conditions. When railways brought cheaper industrial goods, Chinese families ceased to bind their daughters' feet so they could move into new productive activities. Before communism, women's economic contributions were pretty similar to men in the highly commercialized Lower Yangtze region. South Asians, meanwhile, guarded female reproduction more zealously, and that was manifest in child marriage, perda, and strict surveillance. All of these were less responsive to economic conditions. When industry moved from home production to factories, women stayed at home. Female workers in industry fell from 17% to 11% between 1901 and 1921, and then remained low. Rather than work at mills in Calcutta, Bengali women worked from home at a third of the factory wage. To prevent shame, men migrated to towns alone. And even when commerce flourished in the early 1900s, many castes in Uttar Pradesh restricted female mobility because they prioritised honour over earnings. Urban chamas, that is Dalits, put their wives in seclusion. Publishers like the Aligai Institute Gazette urge their readers to restrict female mobility. Let me quote, We wish our women to be educated, but if education means letting them loose to mix with whom they please, if it means that as they rise in learning they shall deteriorate in morals, if it means that the loss of our honour and the invasion of the privacy of our homes, we prefer our honour to the education of our women even though we may be called, called obstinate and prejudiced and wrong-headed. Okay? So the age of marriage was always much lower in South Asia than in East Asia. In 1931, Indians, Indian girls' mean age of marriage was just 13. Chinese girls were marrying at 18, and Japanese girls even later. So now you may be wondering, well, why did South Asians idealise female seclusion? Well, South Asian culture has enormously deep roots. The Indus Valley civilization was remarkably egalitarian, but then came Sintash the stepmen, armed with wagons and battle axes. They glorified brutish masculinity, butchered indigenous men, and reproduced with the women to form ancestral North Indians. Endogamy among upper caste populations hardened around 1600 years ago. Um, the powerful Gupta Empire enforced moral strictures. Smriti commentators also extolled prepubescent marriage and widow chastity. Rulers then empowered religious authorities who preached that spiritual growth was contingent upon casteist patriarchy. Purity and pollution then became more entrenched and embraced. Outside the Gupta Empire, there was still a lot of a mixture, however, especially among tribals. 
Now, Central Asian inveigles and Mughal rule then strengthened these ideas of female seclusion and veiling. In the late 8th century Baghdad, the Abbasid court prescribed veiling. In cities across the caliphate, conquered people culturally assimilated to Muslim Arab Persian ideals, and by the 14th century, women were withdrawing from public life. Parda was then introduced to South Asia by Amir Timur, alongside new cuisine, music, and architecture. Seclusion became normative across urban North India, and upwardly mobile families followed suit to gain prestige. Now, since Rajput honor was already contingent on female chastity, subsequent invasions may have catalyzed cultural tightening and even stricter controls. So that would explain why the first recorded sati was in 9th century Rajasthan. Religious antagonism continued to be expressed through controls over women. In the early 1900s in Uttar Pradesh, Hindu publicists broadcast unsubstantiated allegations of rape, aggression, abductions, conversion and forced marriage by Muslim men. So now here is the next big, big question. How did East Asia overcome the patrilocal trap? Well, East Asia overcame the patrilocal trap because it industrialized rapidly and families were willing to exploit female labor in response to new economic opportunities. East Asia witnessed a classic case of balanced growth, rapid productivity growth in agriculture, which released labor into other sectors, combined with rapid growth in manufacturing and services, which absorbed surplus labor. The demand for labor in industry and services was so strong in the, that the opportunity cost of restricting one's daughter increased for entire villages. So thanks to the late age of marriage, there was an abundant supply of unmarried women who could be hired simultaneously. That synchronized effect helped overcome families' concern about stigma and their daughter being uniquely unmarriageable. With high economic rewards and growing social acceptance, female factory work soon became normalized. East Asian states and employers realized that women were cheap, efficient workers. The Meiji government called on girls to reel for the nation. Emulating that Japanese experience, Asian factory managers in China sought to capitalize on low-cost, educated, disposable labor in food processing, textiles, electronics, and subsequently services. Now, industrialization created the social context for women to gain emancipation. Daughters gained face, that is respect, by remitting earnings, supporting their families, and showing filial piety. Working women express newfound pride, exemptions from care work, and voice in family decision-making. Over the 1990s and 2000s, Chinese sons and daughters were providing equal financial support. Married daughters who lived with their parents actually provided more money than sons, plus more emotional support. In rural areas, daughters were playing the same role. Female worth is no longer reduced to chastity, marriage and male heirs. By migrating to cities, women made friends, they bemoaned unfair practices, and they discovered more egalitarian alternatives. Emboldened by peers, women came to expect and demand better in dating, domesticity, and industrial relations alike. Mingling freely in cities, young adults increasingly dated before marriage, chose their own partners, and then established nuclear households. They gained freedoms. Mass female employment generates attitudinal change. Chinese sons of working mothers are much more likely to endorse gender equality, welcome their wives' contributions, and do more housework. Chinese women now want to work. They have become much more independent and assertive, and that holds right across the class spectrum from university graduates to precarious migrants. College-educated, urban Chinese men and women increasingly champion gender equality and share care work. Sons are no longer seen as necessary to continue the family line. In Korea too, son preference has massively waned. Now this process of rapid economic growth has also fostered cultural liberalization. So again, let me present my new theory on this. So filial piety is still widely regarded as the paramount virtue. Parents continue to rely on their children in old age and see their children as an extension of themselves, who are equally keen to provide for their parents. 
Now, intergenerational solidarity remains strong, but its content has changed. Families are now more materialistic, liberal and gender equal. If parents only have a daughter, they rely on her financially. Instead of socialising her to please her in-laws, parents increasingly want their daughters to become economically independent. Girls often take the place of sons in bilateral residence, naming practices, financial transfers and economic independence. Bias does still persist. Uh, Chinese daughters are less likely to inherit wealth. But East Asian women are much more like sons. They're single, self-reliant, careerists, navigating the world. Another major change is that East Asians have become more individualistic and autonomous. So let me suggest four ways in which rapid economic growth has fostered cultural liberalisation. First, salaries and pensions weaken dependence on kin. Once men can get good jobs at BYD, for example, it is less imperative to please myriad uncles. STEM families can become much more self-reliant. Only a minority of Chinese people actually want to live with their parents or in-laws. Second, rural urban migration can foster individualism. When men and women travel independently for work or study, arrange their own accommodation, away from kinship policing, cook for themselves, form new friendships, they become more self-reliant by thinking and acting for themselves, making their own decisions. They get a taste for individualism. I hear this narrative again and again in interviews worldwide. Chinese women usually tell me that their priority is to be economically independent. Third, when young adults go to university, socialize with the diverse networks, they come to see alternatives and critically reflect on unfairness. Socializing no longer revolves around the family. Instead, men and women hang out with friends at cafes. In China, university graduates are much more likely to find their own spouses. A fourth big change is that prestige is increasingly defined by economic success rather than Confucianism. As people become more materialistic and increasingly judged by wealth and economic opportunities create possibilities for independence, Chinese women prioritize economic advancement. A fifth change is that skills-based technological change has enabled more skilled work. Jobs are now more attractive because they are psychologically rewarding, culturally esteemed and high paying. Women can take pride in socially valued talents, relish creativity and get excited about careers. As educated women become journalists, authors, publishers and filmmakers, they publicly champion gender equality. In Hong Kong, Anne Hui's popular films often showed women striving for personal fulfillment. In China, uh, books like Shanghai Baby and Candy were officially banned, but sales nevertheless boomed. Protagonist quest for pleasure and self-discovery resonated widely, especially with urban-educated women. Yang Li shot to fame with the punchline, how is he so average, yet so full of confidence? As her book, um, Kim Ji Yang, born in 1982, that topped the Asian literary charts in its portrayal of Korea's everyday sexism. Television dramas like Imperfect Victim open up national debates about rape. Taiwan's international film festival, Women Make Waves, now celebrates its 30th year. US content is also enormously popular, exposing viewers to greater heterogeneity. Feminist consciousness is also emerging on social media. Girls Help Girls has become a popular hashtag of female solidarity on Little Red Book, which is like Chinese Instagram. Women bemoan patriarchal privileges. They condemn domestic violence. They encourage other women to escape abuse, share stories of female solidarity and offer advice. Selfless sisters, that is an old trope of girls being expected to sacrifice for their brothers, they're no longer praised as virtuous. Instead, they're seen as unfairly exploited. And since Little Red Book is something of a... Well, it's primarily popular with women. It's something of a female filter bubble. Women decry sexism and reinforce righteous resistance. Chinese young women increasingly seek equality. So economic development, urbanization and universities thus tend to erode kinship, strengthen individualism and encourage women's careerism. Daughters still feel great intergenerational loyalty, but their parents typically want them to be happy and economically independent. 
From my interviews, women are no longer socialized to please their in-laws. Across East Asia, however, there seems to be a growing gender divide. Chinese young women have become much more feminist than male peers. Young Taiwanese men are no more likely to share housework than their grandfathers. So unimpressed by the available offers, more women are now choosing to remain single. Now, back in 1975, only two in 1,000 Taiwanese men were divorced. East Asians have since become much more accepting and more likely to divorce. Um, I suggest that as families become less dependent on kin and more reliant on STEM family salaries, they become more tolerant of divorce. Equally important is a wider cultural pursuit of individual happiness. 80% of Taiwanese women see no problem with divorce. Acceptance is highest amongst university graduates. So if she wants to leave, her family may now be more supportive. The meaning of marriage has shifted from consolidating trusted networks to individual fulfillment. Wives are no longer expected to endure abuse. Okay. Um, Now, I, I should also add that there is a lot of heterogeneity within East Asia. So although all East Asian societies have become much more gender equal, there is substantial heterogeneity. Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan are all closing gender gaps in pay, seniority and parliamentary representation. Japan and South Korea, meanwhile, have the largest gender pay gaps in the OECD. Management remains 85% male, while female graduates may be treated like secretaries, Um, expected to pour the tea and run errands. Korean police and courts have routinely ignored allegations of rape, making women feel vulnerable, alone and afraid. Never seeing others speak out, victims anticipate stigma, and so they stay silent. I call this a despondency trap. Now, I suggest that male-dominated management in Korea and Japan stems from their systems of lifetime employment and also heavy automation. Firms try to buy junior males loyalty by rewarding them with patriarchy. And there's also been heavy automation. South Korea has the world's highest robot density and that suppresses demand for medium-skilled labor. And there's no shortage of talent because extremely well-educated men are willing to work ultra-long hours, the longest in the OECD. And since demand is artificially low in manufacturing, some men move into services, undertaking roles that would have been otherwise done by women. Companies can maintain patriarchy, elevating men above skilled female graduates. Discrimination makes those workplaces incredibly unpleasant, pushing women out. So the lesson is clear. If growth is based on robots, companies can profitably maintain their taste for discrimination. If there's a surplus of skilled men willing to work ultra long hours, then they themselves will compete to please the boss and there's no call for women. Korean and Japanese women's low status in the labour market reinforces gender status beliefs. It helps explain why support for gender equality is weaker than in China and Taiwan, alongside lower support for divorce and a larger gender gap in share of housework. Meanwhile, the Korean manosphere brims with misogyny. Democratization also shapes East Asia's cultural heterogeneity. Frustrated by persistent patriarchy, Korean feminists have rallied against sexual harassment. They became increasingly organized, outspoken and assertive, testifying in public, sharing stories, publicly supporting each other. They're crying shame and stigma. They chorus, not your fault. Government reforms have not incurred in China, however, since feminist dissent is punished. Police tend to ignore intimate partner violence. Now, East Asia's history and diversity reveals that job-creating economic growth is a major engine of gender equality. When companies run out of skilled men, they hire and promote women. As vast swathes of women demonstrate equal competence in socially valued domains, they gain status. Structural transformation, exposure to women in positions of prestige and collective reflections encourage two ideological shifts. One, people become to personally believe that women are equally competent and deserving of status. Two, they realize that gender equality is broadly supported in their wider community. East Asia has thus overcome both elements of the patriarchal trap. No longer subordinate nor secluded, women have gained freedom and status. 
South Asia, meanwhile, remains caught in the patrilocal trap. After India's authoritarian emergency of the 1970s, rights organizations expanded, they gained autonomy and they addressed a broader range of issues. Civil society organizations collaborated with legislators, judges and bureaucrats. Indian women now have many more legal rights than their counterparts in the Middle East and North Africa. However, South Asian politics and labor markets are still dominated by men, while divorce remains rare and intimate partner violence is widely accepted. Younger generations are just as likely to endorse patriarchy as their grandparents. South Asian women born in the 1990s are just as likely to have been beaten as their grandmothers. Pakistani and Nepalese women born in the 1990s are actually less likely to have a say in household decisions than women born in the 1950s. In Pakistan, young men and women are actually more likely to justify wife-beating. There has been zero shift in patriarchal norms. Okay. Economics and culture help explain why South Asia remains caught in the patrilocal trap. First, structural transformation is slow. India, Pakistan and Bangladesh remain 63-65% rural. The labour shortages which cause the employers in the, East, in the Asian tiger countries to resort to hiring women have not yet materialised in South Asia. Men are first in line for jobs and employers need not hire women. Most workers are also employed precariously. They remain heavily reliant on networks of kinship consolidated by intermarriage. Inclusion requires cultural conformity. Even though girls are better educated than ever before, they're still taught to marry, please their in-laws and stay put. Divorce is totally stigmatized because marriage locks in vital networks of kinship. Culture also mediates women's proclivity to work outside the home. South Asian men preserve their honor by providing for their families, keeping their wives in line, and eliminating any possible rumor of female impropriety. South Asians thus accept larger opportunity costs of women not working outside the family. Female employment is thus lower than other regions of similar income. Okay, so let me expand on this, on the slow economic development and persistence of caste. So South Asia's industrialization has not generated so many jobs. The growth elasticity of employment has been very slow in India relative to other countries and over time. Agriculture is mechanized, but there has been very little growth in demand from manufacturing and services. The labor shortages which caused employers in East Asian countries to resort to hiring women have not yet materialized in South Asia. Job queues are long, men are first in line, and employers need not hire women. India has also seen zero change in the scale of production. Most Indians work in tiny firms and tiny farms with low productivity. Small-scale production generates a vicious cycle. Low-income workers cannot afford modern sector goods, and that modern sector thus caters to a narrow stratum of affluent people and is extremely capitalist, capital-intensive, and that suppresses job creation and perpetuates small-scale employment. South Asians are overwhelmingly trapped in agricultural or casual employment. Workers typically lack job security, regular paychecks, let alone insurance against unemployment and workplace injury. Precarious employment and devastating monsoons heighten reliance on kin. India's cities, especially the smaller ones, are rife with caste-based residential segregation. And even if people migrate to towns, they remain dependent on close-knit networks, which maintain strict surveillance, messaging via WhatsApp, for instance, and eager to protect family honour, Bihari migrants in Kolkata comply with rural norms. Their wives remain back in the village. Weak demand for labour also means that Dalit women struggle to escape the rural oppression and find work in the city. Gender, gap, gender wage gaps are largest amongst the lowest caste. The poorest, least educated women have been the major victims of falling female employment. Pakistan's garment industries remain 72% male because available earnings do not compensate for men's loss of honour. Economics matters, but it is not a full explanation of persistent patriarchy. South Asia's female employment is far lower than countries with similar incomes. Sri Lanka has prospered economically, but female employment remains as low as Pakistan. A randomized control trial in Mumbai offered poor women well-paid jobs, but most of them refused because their husbands said no. 
South Asians still tend to believe that men have higher status. Over 80% say that the wife should obey her husband. Women are also supposed to keep their distance from unrelated men. Even if privately egalitarian, most believe that female work will be widely condemned. Eager to maintain respect, men still tend to resist their wives' employment. Cultural preferences are so strong that families may forego economic opportunities. Further, the ideal of female seclusion varies geographically. In Bangladesh, Pakistan, North India, female employment responds weakly to urban demand for labour, as proxied by nightlights. Even if pucker roads and buses improve access to jobs, women tend to forgo their earnings if their communities practice purdha. Restrictions in rural Odisha and Uttar Pradesh are so heavy that women, especially the wealthiest ones, have very few friends. Pakistan's garment factories are always seeking docile female lapers, but they cannot entice women from their homes. Um, now I let me... Uh, okay, so now the poorest families have little to lose, and they regularly sacrifice social respect for the sake of bare-bone survival. In Delhi, Dhaka, and Uttar Pradesh, women only turn to wage work under the most desperate conditions. If the rains don't come and families are really struggling, more women join the labour market. But once family finances improve, women withdraw from the workforce so they can gain respectability and marry their children upwards. Hindu groups of Dalit, OBC, and non-Brahmin forward castes that were initially poor but then experienced upward economic mobility tended to adopt female seclusion. Women were more likely to require a chaperone or permission. Now, even if women work, they're still caught in the patrilocal trap. Indian women who have more education or higher earnings than their husbands have the highest likelihood of frequent and severe violence. And I suggest this is a consequence of gender status beliefs and the caste system. If men feel entitled to higher status, but cannot keep their wives cowed by economic dependency, they may maintain dominance through force. Since endogamous networks are consolidated by marriage and divorce is totally humiliating, she is trapped. 60% of Pakistanis are married to close relatives. Only 26% believe that the wife should have the right to divorce her husband. And in countries like this, with intensive kinship, whether it's by caste or clan or tribe, female employment may provide autonomous spending power, but it does not necessarily advance marital equality. Knowing she cannot leave, he beats with impunity. So in 2022, I spent a week with Anav, who was a driver from a village in Bihar. And I asked him whether he'd want his future wife to work. And he said no, partly because if she earned money, then she would not respect me. She might be unruly. I said, well, how do you know that? And he says, I see women who earn their own money and they don't speak to their husbands respectfully. I said, well, what would you do if, you, or if your wife didn't show respect in public? Well, of course, I would beat her he told me. So economic dependency and violence were two dual strategies to, to secure his desired goal of dominance. And Nav was especially concerned about his public reputation. He did not want other villagers to think his wife lacked respect. Now, regardless of whether an Indian woman has recently been employed, she is just as likely to have experienced marital control. The only difference is that a recently employed woman is more likely to have been accused of infidelity since she's leaving the house. Bangladeshi women who join savings groups or work in garment factories are also at heightened risk of domestic violence. Bangladeshi men may also try to control women's earnings. Confronted by patriarchal backlash, women may prefer to stay at home. Mothers-in-law can also demand obedience, and that's another consequence of the patrilocal trap. Across South Asia, women who live with their husband's family have the lowest participation in household decision-making, the least autonomy, and are least likely to be in non-farm employment. Now, let me tell you, now, now let me share how all this patriarchy is naturalized. So first of all, Loving mothers reproduce patriarchal sons. Women spend more time on housework in countries where female domesticity is widely endorsed. This holds for countries at similar levels of economic development. Culturally constructed ideals of motherhood raise the volume of care work, making it difficult to combine with paid work. Women themselves may view care as an expression of love. 
as observed by Bhattacharya, she writes, many women may find greater love, social recognition and self-worth in being caregivers. So most South Asian women remain at home. Her main role is to take care of her home and cook for the family, according to attitudinal surveys. In India, female employment plummets not with childbirth, but marriage. Loving mothers care intensively for their children, especially their sons. Boys may never learn to cook for themselves, let alone others. 47% of Indian men have never seen their fathers do any domestic work. Sons, especially upper class, are bred with expectations of dominance. In Delhi, employed women actually receive fewer matrimonial offers. Socialization is equally important for daughters. Since marriages are the linchpin of kinship networks, daughters are encouraged to please their in-laws, stay quiet and preserve marriages at all costs. Patriarchal privileges and authority are widely taken for granted, not subjects of debate. If men and women rarely see successful defiance, they may underestimate wider support and feel resigned to their fate. City streets are recognised as men's terrain, while women are deemed out of place. In Delhi and Kolkata, men respect each other as providers, sacrificing for their families and achieving status. Lechery then persists with impunity. For middle-class young men, eve-teasing is just a bit of fun. They resent women's encroachment on their turf and eye any woman on the streets as fair game. Women who venture out may be treated like prostitutes, vulnerable to abuse. A FIFA, a tea seller in Dhaka said, when I sell tea, some men annoy me. They sometimes touch my body and harass me. Since sexual harassment is common knowledge, women who work in public may shame their kin. Victims usually keep quiet. Sri Lanka's free trade zone is sometimes called Vesa Kalape. Maybe I'm mispronouncing that, but it means whore zone. In Bangladesh's garment industry, male supervisors sometimes speak to women in sexually derogatory ways, making unsolicited sexual remarks, touching them sexually. Sexual harassment is also rampant in construction. So good girls, in adverted commas, stay at home, while those who step out are subjected to slander. Female loitering in Mumbai city streets is strongly condemned. Good Muslim women, in inverted commas, in Dhaka, likewise avoid spaces where they might encounter unrelated men. Strict guardrails are imposed for girls' own protection. Even if parents send their daughters to colleges or faraway factories, they often choose colleges with strict curfews. Foxconn factories secure parental trust and female labour by providing hostiles, hostels and imposing strict curfews at 6pm. Girls may even restrict themselves, fearing sexual assault, shame and ostracism. In urban Indian neighbourhoods with high levels of sexual harassment, women are far less likely to seek outside employment, and that effect is strongest in patriarchal homes, where women practice purdah or are beaten for leaving without permission. Men pursue men's Delhi's finest colleges, but women prioritise safety. Media reporting of sexual violence further inflames these fears while suppressing female labour supply outside the home. The Delhi 2012 gang rape amplified widespread concerns. Many women abandoned opportunities to study because they were scared. And as long as parents fear for their daughter's honour and safety, public spaces will remain male-dominated. If women are nervous to venture out, they may not gain the confidence, capacities and friendships that help men navigate social and economic relationships. Cultural celebrations then naturalise inequalities. With relatives asking incessantly, women left on the shelf soon feel like failures. Marriage, motherhood and sacrifice are all celebrated as crowning achievements. Women are then pressured to marry, but unable to exit. And that's the patrilocal trap. Okay, now let me talk about religion. So female employment and divorce are ultra low across India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Since each country has a different religious majority, religion cannot be the primary driver of gender relations in South Asia. But there are four ways in which religion may reinforce patriarchy. First, if close-knit communities are deeply religious, sacrosanct teachings may go unquestioned. Second, even if members are privately critical, they may conform to gain respectability. When Pakistani preachers emphasise hell, they are implicitly threatening earthly ostracism. Third, 
If people regard paradise as paramount and contingent upon patriarchal ideals, female labour supply may be unresponsive to economic incentives. Even if women are employed as professionals, they may still feel obliged to follow religious tenets and obey their husbands. So scripture is invoked to legitimise the patrilocal trap. Fourth, religious violence and discrimination may be worsening gender inequalities. And I'll expand on all of these. So following religious revivalism, most people in Pakistan and Bangladesh um, now want Sharia law to be the law of the land. Pakistani Facebook users who pray daily and endorse religious absolutism are more likely to think that men should have the right to beat their wives and refuse women permission to work. If female employment exposes families to rumours of impropriety and jeopardises their place in paradise, they may be willing to accept a large opportunity cost. Now, Wahhabism has made its mark on South Asia, thanks partly to oil wealth. South A- Saudi Arabia champions itself as the historic heartland of the Ummah, the worldwide community of Muslims. Pilgrimage is a religious obligation. Returnees are greatly respected. Saudi Arabia can thus export its gender norms. By citing scripture and invoking fears of hell, female subordination and seclusion are praised as piety. Indian return migrants from Saudi Arabia are actually more likely to say that a man should have the final word, they're more tolerant of gender-based violence, and they're more likely to blame a woman if she gets molested. In Daravi, Muslim men told me that their wives started wearing the burqa after they returned from Saudi Arabia. Now, in India, Muslims Muslims are more likely to say that men should be providers. In these close-knit communities, female employment carries heightened stigma. Muslim women are indeed less likely to participate in the labour force and earn money. Religious discrimination may be further worsening inequalities. Muslim Indians are increasingly living in communities with worse public services, like secondary schools. Girls may be reluctant to travel outside their neighbourhoods to distant schools and then struggle to get well-paid jobs. After Hindu-Muslim riots, some communities have tightened surveillance, dress codes and curfews. Islamic organisations like jamaat aa islamic have also gained influence by providing crucial relief. Uh, communal violence seems to have exacerbated pre-existing inequalities. And that's consistent with a wider body of evidence suggesting that when people feel under siege, they seek strength and unity, what they want norm violators to be punished, and they gravitate towards supernatural punishment. So we see the persistent patrilocal trap. Female employment remains lower than countries with similar wealth. Of the few Indian women in the labour force, only 15% are employed in services. South Asian women rarely get the opportunity to mix and mingle with diverse others, expand their horizons, build solidarity outside the family or gain status. From laughter to walking, Pakistani girls are closely policed. It is men who go out into the world, run family businesses, migrate to new economic opportunities, opportunities, inherit assets, resolve community problems and mobilise political networks and make the laws of the land. Community support for female employment is also widely underestimated. So globally, uh, groups who predominate in socially valued domains are stereotyped as more competent and more deserving of status. In countries where men monopolize prestigious positions, they continue to be revered. Now, so too in South Asia. Men are widely revered as superior leaders and executives, more entitled to education and employment. Over a third of Indians say that men are more in, are entitled to beat their wives in some conditions. Over a third of women say they have been controlled by their husbands. Pakistani women garment workers may not even question gender wage gaps as they think men more competent. Now, men who feel accustomed to deference then react aggressively when given insufficient respect. The Orat, the Women's March, triggered major patriarchal backlash. Public spaces are men's turf. Only 20% of women, about 68% of men in Madhya Pradesh, had attended a village assembly meeting in the past year. Only 16% of women, but 53% of men, had recently made a claim on a panchayat official. Men have greater political knowledge, networks, and collective efficacy. Twice as many men raise their political demands beyond the ballot box. If gender status beliefs are widely endorsed, then female power grabs as crabs, grabs, sorry, are strongly resisted. Women who participated in self-help groups and gender sensitization were subsequently more likely to be publicly humiliated by their husbands. 
Indian women also struggle to be electorally competitive. They have little opportunity to congregate with peers, amass knowledge of the wider world, forge alliances with unknown men, and accrue campaign funds. South Asia's few women leaders tend to be especially privileged, that is, wealthy, upper caste, or members of family dynasties with guaranteed name recognition. For ordinary women, politics is out of reach. In India, a woman's electoral victory has no demonstration effect. Other parties are no more likely to field women candidates and women in nearby constituencies are no more likely to stand for office. Half the seats in Bihar's village councils were reserved for women in 2006 and 2011, but husbands tended to contest the elections, a uh, process that was called proxy mukia. I've probably mispronounced that. Okay, so let me summarise how East Asia overtook South Asia on gender, and thank you for listening all this way. In 1900, East and South Asia were both caught in the patrilocal trap. Trusted networks were consolidated by socialising girls to marry, please their in-laws, and endure any abuse. Since men's honour depended on female chastity, their movements were tightly restricted. East Asia overcame the patrilocal trap because it industrialised rapidly and families were willing to exploit female labour in response to new economic opportunities. By migrating to cities and providing for their families, women gained status, freedom and friendships. In South Asia, men's honour hinges on maintaining status, keeping their wives economically dependent while preventing rumours of impropriety. Slow economic development means that female earnings are too low to compensate for cultural preferences, so most women remain at home, beholden to their in-laws, enmeshed in social networks that demand strict conformity. Men's far greater freedoms enable them to amass advantage, become revered as knowledgeable authorities, dominate public spaces and lecture at women with impunity. While many women are privately critical, their encroachments risk lechery, slander and backlash. Women thus tend to specialise in caregiving, breeding patriarchal entitlements. Many young, educated, urban and especially South Indian women want to break free of that patrilocal trap. And safety and structural transformation would help them realise their ambitions. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I am Dr Alice Evans. And this is Rocking Your Paras. And I think that paper, which I've just shared with you, will be the most important thing I'll ever do in my life, um, academically at least. So thank you.